Well, good morning. What a beautiful, wonderful day it is. Uh, I'm so glad that you're here. If you're new or recently began attending Christ Bible Church, my name is Randy. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we are continuing to work through the book of John. Uh, chapter 16 is where we are at, uh, so you can begin to turn your Bibles there. Uh, but as we begin to turn, our, turn there in Scripture, I want to help uh, set the stage for what is actually happening here. Um, if you're like me, uh, growing up, often uh, you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, and you thought to yourself, uh, after reading a, one of the stories about Jesus' ministry, uh, you close your Bible uh, for the morning or the afternoon whenever you're reading your Bible, uh, and you thought to yourself, man, wouldn't it be so much better if I was there at that moment? Uh, like we picture ourselves in the Galilean countryside, uh, walking with Jesus, eating the, you know, ever wonder what the bread he broke, you know, and multiplied tasted like, you know, is it good bread? Uh, I like to think so. Uh, but, you know, you wonder these things. And you say, oh, man, it would be so much better uh, if, if I could see and walk with Jesus, if I could touch him, if I could uh, be there as he ministers uh, during his ministry in the Gospels. We uh, leave often thinking we would understand him better, that we would have a greater belief or faith in him. Uh, and so we conclude uh, excited about what we've read, but also a little bit bummed out uh, that we're stuck here today, 2,000 years later, and we weren't there with the disciples alive to experience Jesus's ministry firsthand. Uh, but John 16 this morning preaches to us that this simply is not true. Uh, that it is not better to be the disciples walking in the countryside. And in fact, uh, what we have today uh, is a better position than even the disciples find themselves in as they sit with Jesus uh, at this uh, dinner table in John 16. Uh, John is going to show us, as we open up our Bibles here to verse uh, 4 of chapter 16, just how much greater our position is today and our ability and what we have than if we were to be alive and walk with Jesus back in those days. So turn your Bibles uh, with me to John chapter 16 uh, and let's read uh, verses 4, halfway through verse 4. So if you have uh, a Bible that has headings on it, uh, this is the section called the work of the Holy Spirit in most Bibles. It's actually halfway through verse 4 and we will read through the end of verse 15. The, the word of the Lord, John chapter 16, verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away... The helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine 
and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather as your people here this morning, as we read these words in John 16, we ask and pray that through the Holy Spirit, we would see how advantageous a position we truly are in. Lord, we ask that as we read these words, you would fill us with the knowledge of your presence, the knowledge of what it means to live and have the Holy Spirit, your helper, to minister alongside of us. Lord, we thank you that you give us this great encouragement, that you give us the remedy to drive out sorrow. Lord, that we don't need to wonder if you are with us, for you have told us that you are sending your helper, indeed God, in the Holy Spirit to be with us. And so, Father, we pray that we would grasp this reality this morning and that it would fill us with confidence and uh, give us great satisfaction as we draw close to you uh, through the Spirit this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. And so as Jesus sits here with his disciples, he looks around. He sits there at this dinner table as we've been talking uh, from John 13 to 17, this upper room, uh, and the temperature of the room has been steadily decreasing. Right, he's multiple times now throughout this evening with his disciples have told them about what is to happen. And now they're at this point where uh, it tells us very plainly in verse 6 that their hearts are filled with sorrow. Sorrow has overwhelmed them and they are mourning the fact that Jesus has told them that their time with him is over. They need encouragement and Jesus sees this and offers to give it to them, but not in the way we would expect. Seeing their sorrow, knowing they need encouragement, he looks at them and says, it's better that I am leaving. Most of us hear this and we uh, respond thinking it rings hollow. Uh, If you were somebody who dated uh, in high school, unfortunately, you probably experienced this. You don't really know how to end a relationship. And so you just say like, ah, you know, it's not you, it's me, this is better, see ya. And you walk out. Uh, What's left in the wake of the person who's departed is lots of pain and sorrow, right? The departure of somebody that we love or that is close to us uh, doesn't encourage us, it discourages us. And so when we hear this and Jesus sees this, it seems a little bit ironic that he says, it's better than I'm leaving. You're sad that I'm going, but it's actually a good thing. And the disciples are probably looking at him and saying, yeah, right. If you follow basketball, this would be if all of a sudden tonight I got home and uh, turned on sports and the Phoenix Suns announced it's better for the Suns that Devin Booker, the star player of the Phoenix Suns, uh, leaves the team and no longer plays with them. Uh, I would be devastated and crushed because the Suns' chances of winning a championship would be gone, vanish. Uh, it is not better when the most important person, in, in fact, the person you rely on the most, in the case of the disciples, leaves. And so they hear this, and it is hollow to them, I am sure. There's no way it's better if you leave us, Jesus. We need you. You are our savior. You are our security. But Jesus looks at them and says, it's better that I'm going, and he means it. And he's going to show us, John here, exactly why. The biggest concern for the disciples is that Jesus is going to leave, and this is heightened even in the face of what Jesus has just told them at the end of chapter 15. I'm leaving. Everybody will hate you. I hope you're ready for it. Right? And these people say, not only are you leaving us, you've told us that because of you, everybody is going to hate us. Uh, they're going to kill you, and they're going to eventually come and try to kill us. How is it better that you're leaving us, Jesus? 
But Jesus is not content to leave them overwhelmed with sorrow. And so he's going to here in John chapter 16, turn to the disciples and help them understand what is truly going to be available to them in the service of him, even once Jesus leaves. What are the disciples going to have? Simply put, uh, Jesus isn't leaving just for the sake of his mission to complete his work on the cross. No, Jesus is leaving because his leaving is going to bring an advantage to the disciples. Some people read this and say, of course, it's better that he leaves because now these disciples, they're little children, they need to grow up, they need to man up, all right? And we apply this in many ways in our life. If you have an older child that's in their late 20s or 30s and you're still paying car insurance for them, uh, it would be better for them if you quit doing that. Uh, They need to grow up. And so we say, of course, it's better that Jesus leaves because these disciples need to grow up. They need to have a backbone. They need to become men. They need to become strong. Uh, they'll have to fend for themselves. So if Jesus leaves, they're going to grow into the men that they will be. But this is not what Jesus is saying. When he says, it's better that I leave, it's not so the disciples will mature or gain strength or anything like that. He is saying, it's better for me to leave because if I don't leave, God's plan doesn't progress. The Spirit will not come until I leave. So why is it better for Jesus to leave? John 16, 7. It's better that I go away, for then you will have the Spirit. My departure is a necessary step in God's plan, and so it is best that I leave. You will have the advantage of the Holy Spirit, the Helper. So John, the rest of this morning, is going to show us what this advantage is in three different ways. The advantage of the Spirit first is in the presence of the Spirit. The advantage of the Holy Spirit second is in the proclamation of the Holy Spirit. And third, the advantage of the Spirit is in the provision of the Holy Spirit. The presence, proclamation, and provision. So what do we mean by presence? The disciples are sitting there and they need to do something. They need to stop focusing on themselves and begin to understand what Jesus is going away truly means for Jesus. Like, what is actually happening? And if they do this, they will find themselves a great level of encouragement because in his leaving, it means that his helper uh, is going to be sent. The Holy Spirit is going to arrive. Uh, So the first reason we see the advantage of the Spirit is that if Jesus leaves and the Holy Spirit comes, you literally have the presence of the Holy Spirit beginning to be there uh, with his followers. And we must pause very quickly here and and say something. Jesus is not implying that two-thirds of the Trinity, so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, uh, that in God the Son and Jesus and God the Spirit and the Holy Spirit, that these two people cannot be co-present in his creation. Jesus is not saying that the Holy Spirit is literally unable to come until I leave, meaning something like he can't come because I'm here. But what he is saying instead is that until I leave, until I finish my work, the work of the Spirit cannot begin. His presence will come, meaning the Holy Spirit, and it will be something like the disciples have never experienced. And so he looks at these men that he's sitting at this uh, dinner with, uh, and he says, it's for your benefit that I leave, for if I don't leave, the Spirit will not come. Think about the disciples' life. 
Think about all the times that even though they know God is all present and he's everywhere and he will take care of them, that they have not experienced the benefits of the omnipresence of God. And what do we mean by this? The all presence of God. Anytime Jesus leaves with the disciples, what happens? The disciples spiral, right? They go on a little boating trip and the waves get a little rocky. And what do they do? They begin to panic immediately, right? God, I know you're there and you're, you're doing all these things, but I don't see you. And so I get really, really scared. The disciples freak out. Why? Because Jesus is not physically present with them. Their security in him, uh, they feel like, is gone. If we fast forward just a few short chapters here, uh, the disciples are going to literally see Jesus physically removed from them as he's arrested and drugged and put on trial. This will lead the most notable desire, uh, disciple, the one who we see uh, throughout Scripture as being the bold one, Peter, to not just deny that he follows Christ, but to deny any knowledge that this man even exists. The minute he's removed from the presence of Jesus, Peter falters. Why is this? Because they feel alone. But Jesus very simply is saying, if I leave, I send the helper. And if the helper comes, you will never be alone. A new age is about to dawn, one that John has been full of anticipation of his entire gospel. If we go all the way back to John chapter 1, how does it open up? With the story of the baptizer, John the Baptist. What's he doing? He's proclaiming the inauguration of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is the Messiah. This is the one who we have been told about. This coming age is now here. We flip to John chapter 2. What do we see? We see this wedding feast. What happens at the wedding feast? Waters turn to wine. This is symbolic of the abundance of life, the abundance of resources, of blessings that is going to be poured out in the age of the Messiah, in this new time that is coming. You flip one more chapter, John chapter 3. What do you see in John chapter 3? New life. The new birth, as he's telling Nicodemus, uh, then we flip one more chapter. We get to John chapter 4. What do we have there? The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, who says, what's the proper way to worship? And Jesus says, a time is coming, and I tell you, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus here at the end of his ministry, and John in his writing of this gospel, is helping to see this anticipation of this time of the Messiah, the kingdom that is coming and breaking into this world is now here. And with it is the advantage of the Holy Spirit. This age in the Old Testament is classified uh, over and over and over again in books like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Joel, about the outpouring of the Spirit, the Spirit that comes from God on his people in this age. And so Jesus looks at these disciples and says, it's better that I leave, for that means the time is now here. The time of the outpouring of my spirit, the time of the kingdom of the Messiah. Simply put, as we look here and what John is helping us to realize, the spirit cannot come until Jesus leaves according to God's plan. And if the disciples stop thinking about themselves, they will realize this quickly. What does this mean that the, that the Messiah is leaving? Well, it means he's leaving and he's sending his spirit. He's inaugurating his age. It's about to begin. There's initiation taking place. If they look beyond themselves and the immediate sorrow that they face, they will find an abundance of encouragement for they will see that the promised age of the Messiah is at hand. The spirit will be present along with all of the benefits that it brings. But then John continues. 
And we see the advantage of the Spirit isn't just the presence of the Spirit, uh, but it's also the work of the proclamation of the Spirit. Jesus has just said that the Spirit would go before the disciples to be a testifier in John chapter 15. And so now we have this fuller explanation of this testifying work of the Holy Spirit, uh, and it's going to be proclaiming Jesus. But we must pause very quickly uh, and say we need to correct what we mean by Holy Spirit power. Right? The Holy Spirit power, when we think of this in modern Western culture, is the ability to do signs and wonders. So when we pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit, or we pray that the Holy Spirit manifests itself in some way, almost universally people are saying, I'm praying for some type of miracle, a miraculous healing or a miraculous work. They might be praying for a prophecy or something like that. Uh, but this is not the sole power, or I would even argue the primary power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit at the most fundamental level, is going to have a power of proclamation. What he does is proclaim uh, the goodness of Jesus. He is going to convict the world, is what John says in John 16, 8. Jesus was a revealer. He revealed God's plan to the world, his words and work, and in fact, the entire book of John is meant to show this, approves that Jesus is the Son of God. The work of the Holy Spirit will be to continue this exact same thing. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to show people that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing in him, people might have salvation in his name. And so he's going to convict the world, but we say, how? How and what do we mean by convict? Convict has many different words or, or meanings, right? When we say convict, many of us immediately think to a judicial like, you've, I've convicted you of, of something, right? Like, you're speeding. The cop catches me driving down Happy Valley. Uh, it's ridiculous. It's a 45-mile-an-hour speed limit. Uh, it should be at least 60 in my mind. But, uh, you know, a cop pulls out and gets me. What's he do? He convicts me of my wrongdoing. I was speeding. He writes me a ticket. Uh, and so we think of convict in a judicial sense. Uh, but convict can also mean to reveal or to provide certainty, right? You have a conviction that something is true, like the Suns are the best team in the NBA. That is a conviction that I hold deep in my heart. And I cannot be shaken from it, at least at this point uh, in time. Uh, the Holy Spirit, then, we have to say, is what does it mean by conviction? When he says he will convict the world, is this a judicial statement? Is this a statement of exposing or of knowledge? And I would argue that here it's the, both of these things simultaneously. When the Holy Spirit comes, when he's going to convict the world, he's going to convict them in a sense of judgment, in a judicial sense, but he's also going to convict them with a sense of exposure, showing them a true reality. The Holy Spirit will force division. What do I mean by this? Over and over through Jesus' time in his ministry, he forces people to take a side. Are you with me or are you for me? Do you belong to the Father or do you belong to the world? And the Holy Spirit is going to do the same thing. What does this entail? John is going to show us here. Three ways that the Holy Spirit is going to convict. Verse 8, he will convict the world according or, or concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He goes on in verse 9 here. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This proclamation, this work of the Spirit, the advantage of the Spirit is going to result in conviction 
both judicially and in a sense of exposing or, con- or convicting in a believing sense of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So what sense does John say he'll do this uh, in regards to sin? He says the Holy Spirit will expose and convict the world of their rejection of Jesus Christ. Those who are in power, the world itself, has not only rejected the message of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, that people would be saved in his name, but they will kill him for preaching it. That's what we're looking forward to in John. The Holy Spirit is going to come, and it will convict the world, and it will expose and judge the world for its rejection of the Savior. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. People are going to be forced to pick sides. And so the Holy Spirit is going to help people come to this reality and force people to either accept or reject the message of Jesus Christ. It's going to make them choose. And so it's better for the disciples that Jesus leaves because then the Holy Spirit will expose to the world that they have sinned by rejecting the Savior. This is what the Holy Spirit does. But John continues, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And we say, why would he convict the world of righteousness? Righteousness, when we hear this word, we use it in a good sense. Like that was a righteous action. You did a good thing. Uh, How is he going to convict the world of righteousness uh, by leaving or departing and going to the Father? Well, John here has righteousness in a negative sense in play, right? This isn't the righteousness of God he's talking about in some positive spent. The world's righteousness is going to be revealed as not the righteousness of God. Why are the people going to kill Jesus? Because they think it's a righteous act. It's good that one man should die. Let's kill him they had said just a few short chapters ago. D.A. Carson notes in his commentary that the Gospel of John and John the Apostle loves to pick up on Isaiah. He quotes or paraphrases Isaiah over and over, and so D.A. Carson concludes uh, that here John is picking up on a prophecy from Isaiah 64.6 concerning righteousness. And it says this, We have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We will all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And so what John is revealing to us as we read this, and he convicts the world of righteousness, is that when the Holy Spirit comes, it will show us here today, or show these disciples, or show the world at whole, that even their best deeds are dirty, used, and disgusting rags compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That even the best that the world has to offer are absolutely disgusting in the sight of Christ. This is the filthiness that is going to be revealed. But this is not something the world readily accepts. If we were to leave here and go stand anywhere in line and you uh, are next to somebody at a gas station or uh, McDonald's is where I'll be probably in an hour uh, uh, or the grocery store picking up food, whatever it is, you will ask somebody, do you think you're a good person? And I would be willing to bet 95% of people would say, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. I think I'm doing mostly good deeds. And so they conclude, and I think correctly, if they were a good person, that there's no need for a savior. If they've never been conv- convicted that they are a person who is in need of a savior, if they're not really under judgment because they're a good person, there is no need for a savior. But what John is showing us is when the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts us, 
and he convicts the world that even their righteousness, the things that the world thinks it wins over God's favor by are dirty, filthy, used, disgusting towels in the sight of God. The, sh- the, the, the blinds fall off of our eyes and we see ourselves as somebody in need of a savior. The advantage of the Holy Spirit is great and miraculous because it takes the hearts of people who think that they are good, who think that they're not rebellious and rejecting God, and it shakes them to their core and says, you need a savior. Without this, people would constantly be believing that they can work their way to God, that they were good enough on their own. Without the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, we would never be able to convince anybody of their need for Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to come and convict people of righteousness. This is the most miraculous work the Holy Spirit could ever do. Right? We think of miraculous gifts, again, healing, uh, uh, resurrection even, like bringing people back from the dead when we read the book of Acts. Like these are amazing works of the Holy Spirit. But the most amazing work the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit comes and proclaims the truth about Jesus Christ, rattles people's hearts, and shows them that they need a Savior. It brings the dead to life. And if we stopped here with John, though, we would uh, think of the work of the Spirit as a bit of a bummer. Right? The Holy Spirit is coming and showing us what? Well, that we're sinners, that we've you know, killed the Savior. And two, uh, that even the best things we can do are dirty, filthy rags. And we say, John, haven't you gotten the memo? Ignorance is bliss, man. Like, I would be so much happier if I didn't have to face all of this things that I've done. Now, if the Holy Spirit comes, I'm going to be under the bondage of guilt. Prior to this, I didn't feel guilt. Now, the Holy Spirit's going to come and it's going to reveal all these things and people are going to be left under judgment under guilt. But this is not where John stops. He continues, the Spirit will come. It won't just reveal the rejection of the Savior or the filthiness of our lives, but the Spirit is going to come. It's better that Jesus goes away because when the Spirit comes, it will reveal through the act of exposing and convicting people that through the work of acting and exposing uh, people that uh, the power of this world, Satan, on the cross himself was judged. What happens on the cross? We receive forgiveness for our sins. Right, the most fundamental level, Jesus takes all of our sin on him uh, and we receive his righteousness. But on the cross as well, John has something else in play here. He says on the cross, Satan himself is judged. And how is he judged? Because he is going to be proved powerless. Hebrews 2 brings it out this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, is talking about Jesus, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What is the power of Satan? It's sin. And when sin comes, what comes with sin? Bondage. It traps, it entangles people, it, it blinds them, it crushes them, it paralyzes them. But on the cross, when the Holy Spirit comes, it is going to be revealed, the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world that the person of Satan, the work of darkness, the ruler of this world, has not only no power over Jesus, for he's going to rise from the dead and ascend to his throne, but he has no power, therefore, over his people. 
on the cross, Satan is going to be revealed as powerless over the people of God. And we have to pause for a second and say, uh, evil is still at play. The New Testament constantly tells us that our battles are not of flesh and blood, but against the spirits and the authorities in the heavenly realms, right? There is still a battle at play. But what we can have confidence of, what the Holy Spirit is going to do, as John says here, it's better that I leave, is it's going to convict you that these evil powers ultimately have no power over you. And so we can read a book like Romans and get to chapter 8, verse 1, and read a verse that says there is... Therefore now, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, and we rejoice. We rejoice because the Holy Spirit reveals the powerlessness of Satan. We're not held in bondage. We're not worried about our guilt and shame. It's been paid for by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Once and for all, Christ has fully, completely, and definitively wiped away the guilt of sin for all those that come to him and place faith in him. It is a miraculous truth. And the Holy Spirit will come and show that the ruler of this world, Satan, is powerless because Jesus has done this great and mighty work. But then John's going to pivot here at the conclusion and show us the final reason that it's better that Jesus should leave the disciples. And this is the provision of the Spirit. Verses 13, 14, and 15. When the Spirit comes, he will guide you into the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus uh, is telling his disciples here, it's better that I leave for if I leave, the Spirit comes, and when the Spirit comes, he brings with him provision. He will declare to you what is to come, and he will take what is mine, and he will give it to you. Uh, it's a wonderful thing, but it's actually much di more difficult to understand than when we gloss over it quickly. We have to ask ourselves, what is it that Jesus has that is being given? And to, and to what or to who is it being declared to? He says, I declare these things to you, but what is it? Some take this to mean inheritance. And so they say, Jesus is the Son of God. Everything that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. The Son is the one through whom all creation has been brought about. All creation, therefore, belongs to him. And if all creation belongs to him, and he's declared it to me, then all creation belongs to me. And so we see this manifested in what I call claim it prayers. People who pray, and I claim, and I claim this job, I claim this land, I claim this uh, healing, I claim this proclamation, and so they claim, and they claim, and they claim. Why? Because they believe that Scripture says they have this great, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to them, and so they can claim it, and G Jesus ultimately owns it, so now it belongs to me. Uh, but the, the problem is this isn't supported by Scripture, and even more, it's not supported by experience. Uh, if you go around claiming a job and you show up and they're like, dude, this is the worst interview I've ever had in my life. Of course we didn't hire you. But I claim this job, man. It's mine. They're like, no, get out. We're calling security. Right? What happens? Uh, claim, it, claim it prayers and attitudes uh, can't produce what they claim to. And so that can't be the case. So then we have to say, okay, what else could it mean? Others take it to mean an understanding of the future. The Spirit will declare the things that are to come, John 13, uh, 16, 13 says, and so this must mean prophecy and future events. Uh, and so 
what Jesus has is this knowledge of the future. He knows all things. Uh, and what is being declared as belonging to God or to Jesus is knowledge specifically of future events. And so the one that will inherit this is all Christians. And they conclude then that they should continue to pursue additional revelation. Additional revelation of some kind from God, usually specifically in end times kind of uh, attitudes. But this also falls short of teaching that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. And worse, this is the kind of th thing that most cults are built off of, right? This future revelation, some special revelation of God about the last days. Uh, and they have some date that everything's going to happen. And so then they change, they get a new revelation. I, you know, misheard, my bad. Uh, and so they change. And so we look at this and say that this can't be true, right? This is not... Uh, to the disciples and to Christians, some secret knowledge of the future, uh, the, this ongoing prophecy. Scripture has said that Jesus is the final and full revelation of God's plan to his people. So what then is John saying? Well, I think we need to go back to the very basics here of the book of John. What is John most fundamentally about? It's been about one thing, revealing that Jesus is the Son of God and that if people would believe in him, they would have salvation through his name. Jesus is the fullness of God's revelation. If people would believe in him and trust in him, they would get salvation. His glory in the book of John is all of his revealing work, revealing who he is as God in the flesh. This has been radiating throughout John's gospel. But Jesus knows the disciples have not yet been able to handle the whole enchilada. And that's why in verse 12, what's he say? I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. The disciples, as they're sitting there, even at this moment, even after spending several years walking with the Savior, hearing his ministry, seeing his work, still do not fully understand who Jesus is. And so when John says, the Holy Spirit will come and declare to you the things that are to come, he is saying, I believe that he will reveal, again, the Holy Spirit will reveal the full work of Jesus. And so what this inheritance is, these things being declared to you, is the totality of the ministry of Jesus. When the Spirit comes, he will declare the things that are to come, and he will glorify and reveal Jesus. This is his death, resurrection. What does this mean as the Savior? It's not a promise of ongoing revelation, new words consistently coming to believers. No, the Holy Spirit will bring clarity on the revelation they've already received. This is all the epistles, clarity about the person and work of Jesus. What do we believe as Christians? It's to the advantage of the disciples that Jesus leaves because when the Holy Spirit comes, he will give them full understanding and clarification regarding the revelation they've received throughout the ministry of Jesus. The Spirit will declare both the knowledge of the Father and the personal intimacy that Jesus had with the Father as belonging to the disciples. They will be able to write clearly and concisely. They will be able to preach and teach the gospel as they travel around and bring the many nations to the Father, and they will get to see the same relationship with the Father that the Son has. They will be able to call him their Father indeed. And so what does this mean for us today as we wrap up? How does the advantage of the presence, power, and provision of the Spirit affect our lives or our faith today? There's lots of things we can understand what John is saying, but now we have to look at how does this affect us today? 
Number one, and I think this is uh, on the most fundamental level, something we need to be reminded of all the time, we are not alone. When Jesus leaves, he's saying, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not neglecting you. I will be with you through the Spirit. You will never be alone. And so when life gets hard and we face troubles and we wonder where God is, we look to places like John 16 and we say, the Spirit has come. He sent it to us. God is with us. We are never alone. Second, we can have encouragement uh, because we have, our, we have greater understanding and clarity regarding our standing before God. We can understand that we indeed do need a Savior, that left on our own we would be destined for destruction, uh, and we can also have understanding through the Spirit that freedom from guilt is available through the person of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit's going to come. It's of our benefit. It's to our advantage. It affects our lives because we understand rightly our position before God as bad outside of Jesus and as perfect inside of him. And so we don't have to feel the bondage of guilt and shame if we belong to Jesus. If he's uh, been our Lord, if we confess him as our Savior, we know that definitively the power of this world has been broken and we don't have to sit in judgment any longer. And finally, point three of application here, we can understand God's revelation. This means, and I think this is the, one of the primary encouragements that we get as we read this section of John's gospel, that because of we have the Holy Spirit, we can rightly understand God's word. There's a reason that if you go and read any book written, for the most part, from uh, Ivy League schools that have divinity schools like Harvard or Yale, men who are brilliant, infinitely smarter than me, who study the Bible and Greek and Hebrew and all these things and come up with absolutely ridiculous understandings and applications of Scripture. Why? Because they don't have the Spirit. And without the Spirit, we will never rightly understand God's Word. Without the Holy Spirit, these will just be random words that we read and we try to figure out what they mean. But with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we open up God's word, it speaks to our heart, and we walk in faith with him. We understand his revelation. The disciples constantly are rebuked by Jesus for not understanding him. Have you seen and don't yet know, Jesus says, time and time and time again. The truth is they don't. But once the Spirit comes, they will. The Holy Spirit will provide the right understanding of God's revelation. And so today we can open up scripture and have confidence when we read that the Holy Spirit will be helping us to understand and apply and live according to God's revelation. Apart from that, reading the Bible would be worthless. But because of the Holy Spirit, it's worthwhile. And the Holy Spirit comes even when people who don't believe in Jesus and it convicts people through his word. God's word is what the Holy Spirit uses to change the world. And so we preach God's word, we teach God's word, we memorize God's word because God's word changes people through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can rest in that truth and pray that God would help us grow in our desire and our knowledge and our mastery of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the advantage of the Spirit that as we gather together, as we open up your word, as we read, as we study, that you promise that the Holy Spirit will help us. It will teach us. It will convict us. It will transform us. It will change us 
from being apart from God, blind, stuck in darkness, Lord, to having a proper understanding of who you are. We thank you that it's to our advantage that we don't fumble around the Galilean countryside in awe of Jesus but not understanding who he is, still in bondage of sin and guilt. But, Father, the Spirit comes and proclaims to us the truth that Jesus came, lived, died, that we might be restored to, to uh, you. Father, we thank you that the Holy Spirit reminds us of the powerlessness of Satan, of darkness over our lives, that we don't have to feel like we're in bondage to guilt no matter what we've done. It's been decisively forgiven by Jesus Christ when we place our faith in him, when he draws us to be a new creation. And so, Father, we thank you for the advantage of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray that as we leave here this morning, as we go about our week, that we would be uh, wrestling and asking and pleading with you through the power of your Spirit to help us grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Remind us, O oh Lord, that we are never alone, that you are always here with us, for you have sent your helper to dwell with us. Father, thank you for this great truth this morning. Amen.